Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. Today I'll be talking with Director of Photography John Schwartzman, ASC, about his work on Saving Mr. Banks, a film that tells the funny and touching true story of how Walt Disney convinced Mary Poppins author P.L. Travers to sell the screen rights to her most famous character. The picture reteamed Schwartzman with director John Lee Hancock, with whom the cinematographer first worked on the 2002 sports movie The Rookie. Right after that film, Schwartzman switched from baseball to horse racing and won an ASC award for his work on Seabiscuit. It was his second ASC nomination following an earlier one for Pearl Harbor, which marked John's third feature collaboration with director Michael Bay. His other credits include big, ambitious action films like The Amazing Spider-Man and National Treasure Book of Secrets, as well as character-driven comedies like The Bucket List and Meet the Fockers. Saving Mr. Banks combines Schwartzman's flair for epic scale and period lighting with his talent for understated but beautiful portraiture as he recreates two distinct eras, 1961 LA and early 20th century Australia, while never losing sight of how much can be conveyed by the most subtle changes in an actor's face. It's a delightful cinematic experience for anyone who has a nostalgic attachment to the Walt Disney brand, and I'm very pleased to have John here to talk about his approach. I'd like to begin by asking about what your initial way into this material was from a visual standpoint, because I think you did something really interesting here in that the movie doesn't exactly look like live-action Disney movies of the 50s and 60s, but it kind of feels like them, if that makes sense. Like it, it's, it's almost like you captured the essence of that wonderful world of Disney sensibility without imitating it. You know, I don't know if that was necessarily a conscious decision, but certainly I, I, I can't speak for other cinematographers, but when I read a script, I see that, I see the, the film in my mind's eye. And then really the job, whether it be a 44-day shoot like Save Mr. Banks or a 144-day shoot like Pearl Harbor, is to, when you come to shoot those scenes, try to remember what that image was that you saw. And obviously in the making of movies, Everything else is sort of set up to kind of steer you off of that path. What we had was a really incredible script. Kelly Marcel's script is one of the best that I've ever read. And in it, it switched time periods very much in the way the film does. The real thing for us was, with John Lee and Michael Kornblith, the production designer, and Mark Lavolsi, the editor, what we talked about was how to do this in a way that was not gonna be a series of 80 dissolves, right? How do we make these transitions from 1906 Australia to 1961 Los Angeles or London feel seamless? Because sometimes within the same dramatic scene, you're switching times, but it actually is how you complete the drama of what that scene is about. So I think we were, we were very careful in how we plotted that. With respect to the look, I mean, it was kind of simple in the sense that London, I felt, because I, I had spent enough time in the UK and, and I'm a Southern California native, there's not a lot of direct hard sunlight in London. So P.L. Travers' apartment became soft light coming through windows. Nothing that any other film student really wouldn't do. I mean, not really like highfalutin stuff. The, the Los Angeles, I felt like, and having worked here my whole life and been spending a lot of time in the San Fernando Valley, including going to high school, 
the sun is always there and it's always baking down on you and you feel it. It's a real presence. It's a, it's part of being a Southern Californian. So I wanted the P.L. Travers character to always be surrounded by sunlight wherever I could, make her really a fish out of water. Even in the rehearsal rooms, the sun is hitting the pill, it's hitting the sills, it's bouncing off the floor. And then the real trick for Australia was just not to over-romanticize it, not to make it so beautiful because I could have made it look like a beer commercial, all backlit and dusty. And it wanted to be a place that was desolate and dry and the end of the line for this family who obviously had started up, the father had earlier in his career obviously been in, in a better place. So that, I mean, in, a, in broad strokes, that's how we did it. Really the great thing about doing a period picture, and I'd had this experience as well on Seabiscuit is, you have to be very specific about your frames because if you pan a little left or a little right, there's either a Taco Bell or a 7-Eleven. But if you keep it right there, it's 1961. People would say to me, well, isn't that restricting? And I would say, no, it, it creates a sense of discipline. And I think one of the things that makes this movie really play well is that we didn't have the approach of, well, we'll just show up on the day and block it and see how it goes. This was, we knew where we were going every day because we had to, we couldn't go here or there. We didn't have a visual effects budget to paint out backgrounds. This movie was done in 44 days. Everybody was basically working for scale. It was a very low budge movie by the nature of the kind of movies that I do. You could make 15 Saving Mr. Banks for the price of one Amazing Spider-Man. So that just to put it in perspective. So you go to Disneyland, it's now 2012, but we can't paint out the California Adventure Park. We've gotta be clever. We've gotta put the camera in a way that tells the story, but doesn't suspend the disbelief that we're in 1961. So I think to get sort of circular back to your point, it came out of having to be very disciplined. The beauty of the Disney lot is that the Kem Weber designed stages and, 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 and office buildings and rehearsal studios, that hasn't changed. Fortunately, if you stay away from the team building, the Team Disney building, it's exactly the same as it was when Walt built it. That speaks to something else I, that I loved about the movie, which is that precision, you know, the, form, the sort of very formal compositions. It's very like classically composed movie. And I was wondering, but it's also a very, very actor-driven movie. And does that create problems or limitations for the actors when you have such precise compositions and camera moves planned out ahead of time? Or how's that collaboration between you and the director and the actors work? Well, I think that, you know, again, you're talking about I mean, look at the actors that we had in this movie. The really good actors, the, the ones that are experienced, the technical side of making movies never is a problem for them, right? It's, it's something that they learned coming up. I would tell you that the younger actors are more difficult to deal with than, than a Tom Hanks or an Emma Thompson. And they certainly were on board. Everybody that came on to this movie was making an investment of some kind. They weren't getting paid their full salaries, but they they understood what the piece was about. So again, I think they liked the discipline of me saying to Emma, we're coming from here, right? We were very, cl we were very clear in how we were gonna design these transitions. We're coming from a shot of you as a little girl framed in a window. I need you camera left looking right and I'm gonna start on your reflection in the window. And then when you turn, we'll rack focus to you. And then from there, you can do whatever you want in the rehearsal room. Those, those were the kind of specifics that I would give. And I never had the, I never had Emma say, well, my character wouldn't do that. I mean, they were, they were so gracious. As Tom would say to me, Mr. Hanks would say, oh yeah, because I'd ask him to do something. He'd go, well, that kind of 
feels weird. And I'd say, and he said, he said, oh yeah, that's right. What's um, what's real in fake life is fake in real life. And I thought that was the greatest line ever. Cause you know, you're saying, Tom, can you turn a little more camera right? I need that for the eye line. And you know that really he's not looking at Jason, but it looks that way on camera. That's the cheat of filmmaking, right? That doesn't matter what movie you're making. It's, we're not, it's not real life. The fortunate thing was I had great actors that, and they understood it. So I think that everybody understood that to, to, fu- to fit into this box, we all had to bring our A game and be very precise. And in a way it was very freeing. Well, you mentioned um, child actors and there are some younger actors in the movie too in the Australia sequences. So what kinds of challenges does that create for you? Well, for, so Annie Rose Buckley, who I think is luminous in this movie, I mean, she's just, she, and she, you need her to be because she's, gives you the sense of empathy for Emma's character later. So she has to set the table for Emma. I have worked with young actors. The best thing I can do, and I tend to do this anyway, is, is I sort of light through windows. I use sources that are not close. I don't surround the set in a multitude of C-stands. And especially with somebody like Annie, I tried to just keep a very low profile. I tried to keep it to a camera. We were, we were shooting film. It was a single camera in, with, with Annie whenever we could. And to just sort of disappear. You know, she could do whatever she wanted, you know, kind of thing. And I also had, I had the great Colin Farrell to really give a lot to help her get that performance. And I was talking to Colin about that at the premiere on Monday night. And I said, God, you know, you were so gracious. You gave so much to really help get her in that place. And he said, she gave me my performance. So you have to understand that working on a John Lee Hancock movie is a very special experience. We all want to make really good movies. Everybody who sets out to make a movie does. Every cinematographer who reads a script wants to make the best version of that film they can. John Lee also wants the process of making the movie to be the best possible experience it can be for everyone, including himself. As he said to me, I'm too old and I've made too much money to have this be an uncomfortable or bad experience. And so that that's pervasive. And not only for the crew, but for the actors. Well, you mentioned shooting on film, uh, which nowadays is becoming more the exception rather than the rule. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that choice, if that was always the obvious choice for you, or if there were other conversations about doing it other ways. Well, there, I mean, I, there were, we were a low budget movie, so there were conversations. Should we go digital? Now, I'm a film guy. I've only done one picture digitally from start to finish, and that was Spider, The Amazing Spider-Man, which was in 3D. I have nothing against digital, but at the time, uh, actually the Alexa 4.3 had come out, so we, I, we could do anamorphic. John Lee Hancock's a big believer in shooting anamorphic. He likes that aspect ratio. He likes, he doesn't like Super 35. He wants to go full scope, and I'm fully with him on that. We were talking about it. We were looking at budget differences, and then Allison Owen, our producer, came in and said, you cannot do a movie about Mary Poppins and shoot it on digital. You gotta shoot it on film. And I sort of thought, wow, that was the simplest, best answer for that question. And then the the beauty of film is that it's still a better media to record on than any digital camera. Yes, you could make the argument that if you're shooting a very low light film at night in the streets of LA and you want to put Airy Master Primes on and shoot outside at a 1.7 at night with very little uh, light added. You don't have to augment. Yes, you can do that. And certainly Tom Siegel did a masterful job on drive. I don't shoot that way. I tend to be more of a 
throwback cameraman, I'd like to say. I really have this great kind of love for the history of Hollywood and how movies are made. I tend to light things because I like to have the control over how they look. I feel like that's part of the tool in my uh, box of, of paints and brushes is I light the scene, I create the stop that I want. The aperture is based on thoughts about where, how much depth of fill we want to carry. So it was great to shoot film. It also meant that we had less infrastructure, right? I could throw a camera up on sticks and I could throw Annie in front of the camera and I could roll. Even if Video Village wasn't set up, it didn't have to be. John Lee Hancock stands next to the camera. I light with my eye, so it became the a really facile way to work. You know, it was great. It was just quick, put the camera over here, throw it on a sandbag, look through the lens, let's shoot. And give us a few of the technical specs. I mean, what kind of cameras did you use, lenses, stocks? Uh, so on this, this is another, I've only shot, I, I, although I have used Aeroflexes as, uh, you know, high-speed cameras. I think this was my 29th feature film using Panavision. It's my Panaflex body, 452, which has been with me since The Rock. Uh, it doesn't go out with anybody else. It sits in Larry Hazelwood's office. It's just an old, uh, it's an old platinum. And on this movie, I used a set of G-series anamorphic lenses, the primes, and the two G-zooms. I wouldn't say I necessarily like them better than the Cs, but it takes a long time to get a good set of Cs together. We were a low-budget movie, and given the amount of prep time we had, it just seemed like the smarter choice was to go to go Gs. And I really do like the Gs. They're great lenses. So it was, we had one set of G primes from 30 to 100. Then we had a we had an E135 and an E180, and then we had the the ATW, which is a 40 to 80 zoom, and the ATZ, which is a 70 to 200 zoom. And then two film stocks, 52-19 for night work and low light interiors, and then 52-13 for everything where I could get away with that. I would shoot, that was always my default stock, but without making it so uncomfortably hot for the actors, if I needed to on an interior go to 52-19, I would do that. And you mentioned, you know, what a big Hollywood, you know, fan you are of old Hollywood and classic movie making and all that kind of thing. And I was wondering, in terms of prepping for this movie, you know, I know that Walt Disney was kind of infamous for being this, you know, sort of all-consuming archivist. And I'm wondering what kind of access you had if, if you and John Lee Hancock and the production designer, were you, uh, in terms of finding your visual references for the movie, were you looking through old Disney archives and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I mean, Walt Disney probably could, you could probably say that Walt Disney invented invented branding. I mean, he really got it. And the one great thing, and I've done now six or seven films for Disney, they actually really do know how to archive, including their motion pictures. So there was a plethora of material, uh, including 60 hours of P.L. Travers audio that I had on my iPhone just to listen to. I mean, her... That stuff that you see in this movie really happened. I mean, I still have it on my phone. Obviously, we had to pick our spots in Disneyland based on what the park would redress for us back to 1961 uh, and wouldn't didn't require visual effects work. So, you know, part of it is you're backing into things and you, you know, you figure out what you figure out what pieces you have and then you try to use them in the right way. One of the greatest things was there was a ton of great still footage from uh, the premiere at the Grumman's Chinese, in which they had basically put big eye 10Ks on the south side of Hollywood Boulevard 
to light the premiere because they had a lot of newsreel cameras there. And in those days, I would imagine those were probably ASA 64, right? So they needed to pump up the light. If you look across now, if you stand at Grumman's with your back to the entrance and look across, there's a Baja Fresh, there's an American Apparel, there's, it's all not period. So my solve to that was uh, painter scaffolding, 12 feet high with 10Ks on it, 100 feet of pipe, and then red, like just curtain, drapery back there that blocked all of that out. The other thing that it created was when, when PL gets out of the car and she's walking into the premiere, I was encouraging the operators and everybody and telling the grips, don't flag the lens. Let's have these lens flares. It's a, let's make this feel like a paparazzi event. But that, the way that is dressed and the way it, we staged it was really exactly based on this art, these archival shots. It was one of the great finds when Michael Kornbluth said, look at this, and I said, oh my God, that's, that's the solution to our problems, and it's real. So you obviously were shooting in a lot of the real locations. You said that you know Disney Studios, a lot of it hasn't changed that much. You're shooting Disneyland. Were there other places that you had to sort of you know, fake? Well, I mean, uh, we shot Simi Valley for Australia because we didn't have the budget to travel to Australia. And ironically, Alara now is more built up than the Big Sky Ranch in Simi Valley. So that was the one sort of cheat. We did not go to, we did not go to New South Wales. Um, we sh couldn't shoot at the interior of the Beverly Hills Hotel because they don't allow filming ever since Bewitched. No one's been allowed to film there. We filmed at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena, which was the old Ritz-Carlton. I don't think anybody's gonna know the difference. We did shoot the real entrance to the Beverly Hills Hotel on a Sunday morning and drove that limo in. The only set that we built, we built Walt's office and we built the rehearsal room for two reasons. One, obviously it gave us the ability in the fall, if we were doing a day scene, to shoot for a full day because we controlled the light. But the second reason was that the producer of Desperate Housewives wouldn't give us Walt's office to shoot in. He's now in there producing, Mark Cherry was in that office, and we were told by under no uncertain terms that we could not use Walt's office. So there's plenty of historical documentation and photos of what Walt's office looked like. So Michael Kornblith rebuilt it on stage with the ability to allow me to pull walls. You know, I could roll a bookshelf out to get a camera behind a couch, which was a great, obviously is, is a great advantage than trying to shoot a practical location. And are you the kind of cinematographer who, again, sort of getting back to the idea of visual references and things, do, do you have certain other movies in mind that you look at as models for what you're doing? Or is it just purely about responding to that, as you were saying, that first read of the script and what you see in your mind when you're, you're reading that? Well, on this one, I think it's 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 really more what I saw in my mind's eye, because we didn't have to. It's not it's not National Treasure Part Two. We don't have to tick boxes. Having said that, John Lee Hancock has a great sense of composition. He loves tableau. He loves frames within frames, which we used a lot in this movie. And for John, he always feels like the location is also a character. When I did The Rookie with John, he said to me, remember, this is not a baseball movie, this is a Western, and Texas is a character. And if you rewatch The Rookie, thinking about it as a John, like the way John Ford would have done it, there's a lot of similarities. I would say that John, Lee, and I always reference, in anything we do, we reference HUD and The Searchers. Now, John is from Texas. I mean, we all have a sort of default that we go to. Mine is having grown up loving the films that I and going to film school and then 
I would say to you that I love the work of Vittorio Storaro and Jordan Cronenweth, and these are great heroes, but where Jordan Cronenweth is really exceptional is in a movie like Cutter's Way, right? Where no one really thinks of, they think of Blade Runner, but when I think of Saving Mr. Banks, and I've done big movies, I've done splashy movies, but I would say that I, my approach to Saving Mr. Banks was very similar, at least in my mindset, to the way Jordan shot Cutter's Way, which is, it's a masterpiece. And it's about faces, and human faces, in a way, are the greatest landscape you can shoot. And Jordan understood that. And if you watch that movie, or if people haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's really a spectacular film. And the cinematography is not audacious, but it is perfect. Now, I, I'm certainly not about to say that Save Mr. Banks is perfect. That was my reference for Saving Mr. Banks, not in terms of composition, but just in terms of we're, we're, we're a similar kind of story. It's people in rooms, it's interpersonal relationships. Look how spectacularly this is done with a minimal amount of fuss. Well, I, I second your admiration for Cutter's Way, and I'm really glad you brought it up because one of the things about your cinematography in this film and in pretty much all of them is, you know, I do think you're one of the masters at lighting the human face. I mean, I think any actor would want to be photographed by you because you just make them look terrific in a way that's not show-offy or overly self-conscious. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on, like, do you have a kind of overall philosophy about how you light uh you know, the human face and, and portraiture, or is it something that changes from film to film and actor to actor? Obviously, there are certain lamps that you find on certain actors that work well, but you discover that as you're making a movie. But, I mean, I'm glad you say that because I think that's, that is who I am. Even if I'm gonna make somebody look bad, I wanna do it in a way that is uh, interesting. You know, I really, I love to light, and I really love to light faces. Sometimes it's a china ball. Sometimes it's a big lamp coming through a window. Sometimes it's a skip bounce off the floor. I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I watch a scene, I'll watch a rehearsal. Now granted, many of the movies I do, I've pre-rigged it in such a way that I, I feel like the, lo the location always tells you how it wants to be lit then it's my responsibility to sort of, with the blocking, maybe cajole the director and the actors into helping me fulfill my needs. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I am, I am very aware that these are movie stars, and even when they're supposed to look bad, like when Emma's crying in the movie theater, you want to take great care. When I was doing The Green Hornet with Cameron Diaz, and Cameron's an absolutely beautiful girl, but like all women, top light is not her friend, and we're in an office set with 300 image 80s overhead. Fortunately for me, they were on a dimmer cue, so as she walked, I could always have them going off over her head. Michelle Gondry screamed at me one day and said, all you Hollywood cameramen, all you wanna do is make the women beautiful, and I said, Yes, you're right. Cameron Diaz is getting paid a million dollars a day to be in this movie, and I, I want her to look beautiful. I, and I, I'm not making any bones about it, and I'm not apologizing. So I, I do love that. I mean, I think that's, whether it's Jack Nicholson in bed, beautiful may not be the right word, but I want the lighting to be compelling, and I want it to feel real. I always am looking for where is the source. Now, on a Michael Bay movie where we're on a space station or where you have a lot more 
freedom. But I also understand I came out of the world of commercials with Michael Bay and David Fincher. We did a lot of stylized work. We did a lot of high fashion. I still shoot Victoria's Secret. So not that those women need a lot of help, but you know, it's it's what I do. I like I like close-ups. I I can remember lighting a close-up of Kate Beckinsale on like the third day of Pearl Harbor and thinking to myself, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen through a lens. And I think she still absolutely is a spectacularly gorgeous woman today, but I loved lighting her. I mean, it was just move the light down an inch, move it over to the right, just to see how by moving the light around, it changed how they looked and therefore maybe how the emotion was gonna play. Because you know, you're there to support the drama of the scene. Well, something else that I think really supports the drama in Saving Mr. Banks is the use of color. I really like the palette in this movie. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you chose that and, and maybe about collaborating with the production designer and the costume designer. Well, I mean, the, the color in Saving Mr. Banks, so just understand that this was a DI, so it was done on film, we scanned the film. I did this DI with Stefan Sonnenfeld in about three days, and I do DIs the same way I used to do photochemical. I don't, I just tell him a point of yellow, point it right. There are, I don't think there's a window, there's not a power window in the entire movie, right? I just literally go in, I shoot it the way I think it should look. The color in this movie is not me. I mean, yes, there were times when I said, take these lights down a little bit on the dimmer, let's warm them up a little bit. I feel this shot, the scene should be a little warmer. But there's no filters on the camera, there's no diffusion on the camera, I never use diffusion. I do use an 85 filter when I'm outside. This was all time of day, location, great art direction, and, a, and stunning costume design. Stunning, I mean, that is it. I didn't, I just, lit the room the way I felt it should be for the scene. Most of the time on stage, it was just 3200 Kelvin light. In the DI, I didn't change it. What you're seeing is the interaction between my light, Michael's art direction, right? Because if the light bounces off something warm, the reflection's gonna be warm. And Daniel Orlandi's really great, and I mean great costumes. That's it, it's very simple. There were no grand thoughts of, oh, we should put half blue moonlight on this coming through the window. Again, I just do it by eye. There's a night shot that I think is beautiful of Walt Disney sitting on a bench outside of the animation building. Now, I had to turn off all of the lights at Disney because they were mercury vapor and sodium vapor, and I really wanted to stay true to the period. So to light the building, I laid um, like, 60 feet of bat strips, which are basically, bat strips are one by three pieces of wood with just porcelain sockets and household bulbs. So you figure every foot, I had a 150 watt or 100 watt household globe. I'd laid those behind the hedges and they just gave a nice warm uplight on the building. It was the kind of you know incandescent light that you would have had in the period. And I just felt like, okay, with Walt sitting outside on the Disney lot, they didn't have these newfangled, you know, electronic lights. So I kept the night lighting just warm, tungsten. And I just thought, wow, this looks really pretty. You know, nothing fancy about it. Oh, hey, that tree's a little dark. Let's put another bulb under that. I mean, literally, that's how I do it. It's not, there's no great science, you know? I mean, maybe there is and I've forgotten the science and I can just kind of use my gut instinct, but I don't do anything different than a film student does. The only difference is that maybe a film student can wait a little longer for the sun to be right, but when I'm shooting a movie and I've got Annie Buckley who can only work for five hours a day and she can be on set for eight, you've gotta have your ducks in a row because 
the show must go on. I you on a movie like Spider-Man where we're spending $400,000 a day, we don't sit around and wait for the sun to come out because the producer's going to say, "Why are you why do you have five trucks full of lights?" The job is to do it, you know? So, I think in some ways it's easier to do smaller films because you have a little more flexibility. The taxi meter's not running as at quite the same speed that it is on a big budget movie. Well, before we close out, I want to bring it back around to something you talked about in the beginning of the conversation, which was the transitions between the different time periods and locations. And I sort of almost hesitate to call the Australian material flashbacks because they're almost as prominent in the movie as the 1961 stuff. The two periods impact each other so much. And I was wondering if, you know, when you were lighting those two different time periods in two different locations, were you, what were, where was the line between wanting to differentiate between them and wanting them also to have similarities? Because they do sort of emotionally reflect and inform each other. Well, you know, fortunately we shot the Australia part first, which was great. Because that really, once I, I knew what, I knew where we were coming from and where we were going. And I think one, it was a great lesson that I got early in my career, which was as a cinematographer, always know where you're coming from and where you're going, at least as of now. Now things obviously change in, in editorial. So we could always look at the playback from something we shot before we had Emma. And, I, that, and that really allowed us, and I could say to John, what do you think? And John might say, you know, let's make her a reflection here. There are certain modern tools that you have at your disposal, which we really help. But you're not always right in making the choices you make, but they were not, it was done with, with precision and discipline, not, it was not found in the editing room. I mean, there's only one scene in that movie that we, that is, not, that, there's only one scene in the script that didn't make the film. And that's a first for me. And it was just because it was another scene in Australia and John said, you know, we don't need another scene of Colin drinking. We know he's an alcoholic. We don't need to put a, we don't need to hang a lantern on it. You know, it doesn't move the story forward. At this point, if you don't know he's a, a lush, you were, we've lost you anyway. But the answer is that it was a decision that we sometimes made on the set. Part of it also would be informed by Emma in watching her performance. When she would rehearse or she would show us something and if I said to John I need five minutes I just want to I want to change something here you know I want to do something different when this she goes swish swoosh and wipes the mirror clean you know let me I, I see something I, I think you're going to like this better nobody no actor in their right mind is going to say to somebody like me I don't want to wait no go let's just shoot I want to go home I mean Emma knows that we're all there to make this the best possible version of this movie we can. So if I said to her, Emma, can I just have five minutes? I, I know this looks okay, but I wanna do something better. I don't have everybody looking at their watches going, oh God, here we go again. It's like, take the time, do it right. Now, I also am very quick, so it helps that I, I move quickly. I have a very strong sense of what I want and I don't vacillate much, so, you know, it was, it was, a, it was just an incredible experience to have to know every day what you were doing and where you were gonna put the camera. We had the same restrictions on Seabiscuit. And again, I thought that's why Seabiscuit turned out so well because there was no CGI really back when we did Seabiscuit or if there was, it was very, very expensive. So we had to go, okay, I can shoot this part of the racetrack, but if I pan over to the left, there's a parking lot and a shopping mall and we don't have a way to get rid of that. Nowadays, you could just shoot it and somebody could paint it out. Back then, the idea of painting something out was a, you know, that was a half a million dollar shot. That was a big deal. 
you know, in, in, on Seabiscuit, it was cheaper to hire 10,000 extras than it was to put them in digitally, right? Today, you wouldn't even have that discussion. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming in and uh, talking with me about this, John. It's my pleasure. I really, I really, I hope people see this movie. I know it's not flashy, but I will tell you, I think from my point of view, it's some of my, I think it's some of my best work. It's, uh, I mean, I, I really am very proud of the movie. I think it's, I think it's a great film and I think it looks really, I think it's beautiful and I think it's, it's just a great, it's a great movie about storytelling, about what it is to be a storyteller and how movies are made. I agree. Well, this has been Jim Hemphill and John Schwartzman talking about Saving Mr. Banks for the American Cinematographer Podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.